0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hi. Hey, you guys. Uh, Who's on the show this week? Uh, This week, I talked to Emily Bazelon. Emily has been on the show before, uh, but she has a book out called Charged. It's about the criminal justice system, specifically about the power of prosecutors and uh, how that is and is not changing. Um, And it's a great book. And it was fun to have her back to kind of walk through why and how she put it together. There's also an accompanied podcast, which is called Charged. We talked about that as well. And uh, it was fun. If you want the kind of like backstory of how Emily Bazelon became a reporter, you should listen to the first episode with her. That's a good one. Did, is uh, is the podcast like the same as the book or is it a second book? It's a second. I, that's one of the things we talked about is that she had to get a Another character for the podcast. After spending a lot of time with different stories for the book, she had to then find another one for the podcast. So it really added it to the workload of the project. You know, if you're already doing
3: a book, you're already doing a podcast, why not add a mailing list to the mix? It's the way to get the word out and bring the attention to the book and the podcast which are about different stories. Uh, There's no better way to do it than with MailChimp. Uh, MailChimp makes it really easy to keep track of people. Let's say you've got like a project where one thing's coming out and then something else is coming out. Great. You sign people up on the first one, then boom, bang, bing. It's all good. MailChimp.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Boom, bang, (laughs) bing.
3: Here's Evan with Emily Bazelon.
2: Emily, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
2: Last time we talked, we ended, I sort of said, you know, what are you going to work on next? And you said, well, I'd love to do another book, but I don't really know when that's in the cards. And that was five years ago. So here we are. I have your book. How much of that time was taken up by this book?
1: I had the idea for the book, uh, I think around the end of 2015. And I wrote a proposal for it that was all about the power of prosecutors and really about abuse of power and the um, ways in which prosecutors were driving mass incarceration. And that remained important to the book. But while I was reporting something Totally welcome. And for me, exciting happened. The story changed nationally. I wasn't expecting that. But people around the country in 2016 started trying to elect reformers to the district attorney's office in a whole bunch of American cities. And a lot of those people got elected. So like November 2016, many of us were distracted by the results of the presidential election. But, no. once I, <laughs> but once I kind of woke up and started paying attention to these local DA races, I realized I could compare an old school prosecutor to someone who was planning to do it differently. And that seemed really interesting to me, to look at two justice systems that were one of which was trying to fundamentally change the way it was oriented.
2: So let's step back a second and give people a little context for the book if they haven't read it. First of all, you were, when we talked last time, you were doing sort of double time Slate and New York Times Magazine. Oh, yeah. Now That's true. you are a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. I have to admit, I don't technically know what the diff- what exactly that constitutes.
1: It means I get a salary. <laughs> I'm like on staff at the New York Times. <laughs> It has, in that sense, it has advantages to being a freelancer.
2: But you also still do the Gab Fest.
1: Yeah. So I still do the Slate Political Gab Fest, this weekly podcast I've been doing forever with David Ploss and John Dickerson.
2: True. So when you say you came up with the book idea in 2015, was that based out of reporting you were doing for a magazine story? Or was it just something that was in the air that you just kind of gravitated towards outside of that?
1: It was in the air, and then I pitched a magazine story that let me explore one side of the book. So I started working on a story about a woman named Nora Jackson. When she was 18, her mother was brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night in Memphis. It was the kind of crime there's a lot of pressure to solve. Um, Nora's mom is a white family in, like, an upper-middle-class neighborhood. And the prosecutor in Nora's case had become the elected DA in Memphis, even though... After Nora was convicted, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned Nora's conviction because that prosecutor, whose name is Amy Wyrick, had flagrantly violated Nora's constitutional rights by not disclosing evidence that could have helped Nora prove her innocence. And then by making a statement in the closing argument in the trial that basically like incriminated Nora, even though Nora had chosen not to testify. So I did a lot of reporting for the magazine and wrote that story in 2017. And that was a way of testing the waters for that part of my reporting. And also just it was a good story.
2: And I'm very interested in when you settle on an issue like this or decide to cover something like prosecutorial power that's Basically, what the book is about in different ways and how it's changing and how it could change and the impact on people who arrested and everything else. How do you start to get a grip on that? So you had this one story, but it's vast. There, Things are happening all over the country. Like you say, they're changing to how does this process start? What does it look like for you when you say, OK, now I'm going to get into this issue?
1: I sort of operate on two tracks at once, I look for a story that's like going to have a classic narrative spine. So I'm going to tell you a story that's going to allow me to illustrate some of the issues I'm learning about, but it's just going to be a reported story like you would want to read because you care about this person and you want to know what's going to happen next. At the same time, I start talking to lots of law professors, usually, Mm. since that's my field. And I start reading a lot of literature and trying to figure out what arguments people are making, what they've shown empirically about how, in this case, prosecutorial power actually works. So basically, like, what do we know? What does the social science show us? And then how does my story relate to that social science? And hopefully I pick a story that intersects in a good way with the social science. It doesn't have to be absolutely representative or perfect, but I have to understand the relationship between those two things so I can tell you what the context is. Mm
2: -hmm. That was one thing when it came to Nora Jackson I was curious about if you had picked other stories that did not end up sort of jiving with the larger premise of the book that just sort of fizzled out.
1: Yeah, I always end up doing more reporting than ends up in a book. And part of what you're doing, I think, in the beginning of a project like this is figuring out who your main characters are. The way I came to Nora was really through the prosecutor, Amy Wyrick. Because she had a pattern of violating people's constitutional rights and yet had gotten elected, I was interested in that. And the office in Memphis, the DA's office, had a history of the same kinds of bad practices. And that just struck me as I hoped it was unusual, right? Like, how does it happen that a district attorney's office effectively gets away with breaking the rules and there are no consequences for the professionals who are doing it?
2: And the other the other sort of main thrust of the narrative part of the book is in Brooklyn gun court or starts in Brooklyn gun court. So at what point did you choose that as a sort of narrative to pair with what happened in Memphis?
1: Yeah. So the way I got to gun court in Brooklyn, I wanted to show the ordinary, totally legal humdrum kind of prosecutorial power that assistant DAs exercise all the time, and I want to show how much discretion they have in these ordinary cases. I also wanted to pick a hard case, and what I mean by that is I wanted to choose someone who was accused of doing something serious, like... By the time I was writing this book, I felt like I'd heard a lot about the idea that, like, we shouldn't be putting people in prison for smoking pot. That would have seemed kind of obvious, right? Like, okay, I could pick the kid who got pulled over, had a small bag of weed and ended up in jail. But it felt familiar to me. Mm. And so I thought, okay, well, how can I make people think about what's actually a more typical instance of mass incarceration, because more than half of the people in prison and jail in in America are there for offenses that we call violent, not just like murder and rape. They can also include things like gun possession or taking someone's iPhone off them on the street. But all of those things seemed like harder cases to me. And I wanted my readers, I wanted to grapple with the harder case. And I was hoping my readers would too.
2: And so describe a little bit what that looks like when you decide... Okay, Brooklyn Gun Court is a good place to find a case like that. And now I'm just going to what? How does it start?
1: I just started sitting on the bench and listening for days. I figured out what the courtrooms were. There are these two courtrooms in the big downtown Brooklyn Courthouse. Anyone can go in and watch. There are dozens of cases, or at least like 15 or 20 a day, that get some sort of process, often a really brief hearing. At first mm-hmm. I didn't understand a lot of I was hearing because court is so filled with like acronyms and jargon. It's hard to even, I mean, I went to law school. Yeah, you I not really law follow. It doesn't really matter. I didn't follow anyway. Every local court, even the local courtroom, has its own distinct language. And sometimes you just literally can't hear what's happening. So I had to, like, figure all of that out. And one of the things that hooked me was one of the first days I was there, I was watching this 19-year-old kid named Zamir. And so Zamir's backstory was that he had been arrested for having a gun that was unloaded in his grandmother's apartment. It was just there. Someone had actually called it into the cops. They had come and executed a search warrant. He was on like his 10th or 11th court appearance and his lawyer was ready for him to plead guilty and had agreed to a plea deal where Zamir was going to plead to a felony and he was going to go to jail for some short amount of time. And he'd agreed to do this. But in the meantime, like a year had passed since his arrest and he'd gone to this pipe fitting class and gotten certified for it and kind of shown that he could be an upstanding citizen. So his lawyer was telling all this to the judge. And she looked at the prosecutor and she said, effectively. Can you drop this charge down to a misdemeanor? Because I don't want to send this kid to jail. And the prosecutor said no. And in New York, that's up to the prosecutor. Because if the charge is a felony, it's a mandatory jail or prison sentence. And if it's a misdemeanor, it's not. And the prosecutor could pick. And that seemed crazy to me, that this was the choice of the prosecutor. And that even when a judge was saying, I don't want to send this kid to jail, that wasn't the outcome. In fact, Samir did go to jail. And then when I talked to him afterward, he was like, that really messed things up for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And he appears in the book in a sort of briefer way than the main character from Brooklyn Concord in the book, whose pseudonym is Kevin. Yeah. Um, But that brings me back to this question of sort of how all the reporting worked, which is at some point you clearly had these different cases. And how many did you follow to try to see which ones you could spend a huge amount of time with?
1: Yeah, so I have a general rule for a story like this, which is to try to interview between 25 to 40 people who are potential main character, subjects for a big project, because I want to get a sense of what the phenomenon is like, what a group of people is like. And someone told me once, who is a social scientist, that when you get up to like around 30 or 35 interviews, you start to see patterns and you start to get a sense of like what the universe of subjects are. So I was doing that. And at the same time, I was looking for people who, two things, who were good at describing their world and willing to talk about it. And then also who I could continue to stay in touch with over time. I find that, especially when I'm writing about young people, that's a big challenge. Like texting you back, calling you back, showing up, this is not their priority for understandable reasons. And I also, I guess I had a third thing. I wanted to find someone whose case I could follow through in real time. So Kevin, he got arrested a few months before I met him. So when I met him, he was pretty much at the beginning of this process of going through gun court. I knew it was going to take like a year and a half, probably, or even more, just given the trajectory of these cases and how they played out. His lawyer was hoping to get him into a diversion program so he wouldn't go to prison, and I knew that program lasted for a year or at least I found that out and then I was like oh well if he gets in following him through to see what happens to him if he can complete it that'll be really interesting and then I guess the last thing is in my files of these 25 to 35 people there were a few kids who the defense lawyers flagged for me as being like the gold star kids like this kid has never been troubled trouble before in his life. Like, his parents are totally behind him. He's doing great in school. And I didn't want to follow one of those gold star kids. And partly, again, it just seemed like it would be too easy. And at this point, I was looking for someone typical. And while it was typical for these young people not to have felony records really it was also true that most of them had some kind of record were not shoe-ins had some kind of I use this word nervously because I'm never sure what it means but like had some involvement with gangs and so I wanted to make that part of my story and Kevin fit all of those criteria and he also was someone who like I was saying he was just really good at talking and telling his story and that is an immense help.
3: Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from the Great Courses Plus. Uh, A lot of people's education is mostly about practical, marketable skills, but uh, for a lot of people, there's a deeper down interest in things like painting or playing music or studying history. And uh, the Great Courses Plus is there to hook you up with a huge library of audio and visual courses on just about any topic. Uh, I just opened the app up right now. Let's see. The the Pirate Wars of 1718. That's a class you can take here. They've also got more traditional stuff like Screenwriting 101, a class on baking, a class on Egyptian hieroglyphs, lots of stuff to get excited about, and... If this sounds exciting to you, you can get a full free month of unlimited access to the entire library. You could take all the classes if you don't sleep. Uh, You get a full free month as a listener of this show by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Make The Great Courses Plus your go-to for lifelong learning. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform gets you a full free month of the entire library. Uh, here's Evan back with Emily Bazelon.
2: Well, it's funny you mentioned the gangs thing, because I feel like in both the book and the podcast, we haven't talked about the podcast yet, but there's a companion podcast. You also have to kind of step back and interrogate some of those issues, things that sound very on the surface. Oh, well, he was in a gang. So that changes Uh, how he's prosecuted, but then when you actually look at what it meant for that person to be in a gang up close, it's become sort of absurd in that the label is applied in whatever way people seem fit to apply it. But but how do you figure out – I mean, each situation is different. How do you figure out which of those things you want to interrogate that deeply?
1: Right. Well, in this case, the thing I was interrogating, and it really took me months to even think I understood – was what it meant to have a gun for these poor kids from Brooklyn. They almost all, when I just asked them that question, they would say, I have it for protection. But I didn't really understand what that meant. At first, I thought that it meant self-defense. Like, in the moment, you have a gun on you, and you pull it out, and it saves you. But then people started telling me, first of all, they didn't have a gun on them because they knew they could get arrested for having a gun. And so it turned out that a lot of times... Somebody had a gun. There was, like, access to a gun among a group of young men. But that didn't mean that it was, like that people were packing all the time. So that was interesting, because then I was like, well, then how is this self-defense? Because if someone <laughs> attacks you, you don't even have this weapon There's on one
2: you. guy who just asked a guy to carry a gun and walk walking behind him, and I I had that question, too. I was like, there's no situation in which you can get the gun from the guy walking behind you in time to solve your totally. problem. Totally.
1: Protection does not mean self-defense. Also, in my podcast, um, Kadeem Gibbs, who is sort of functions as our expert, he's looking back on his own adolescence, and he tells Tells us about getting shot while he was carrying a gun. Mm -hmm. Like, it just doesn't even work in the moment because, look, this is something we know about guns more generally. Like, people invest them with all this power to protect them. But that doesn't mean that you're trained to use it. And so that's not what it means. What protection means is that you're someone who's associated with having a gun. And so you are hoping other people won't see you as prey. They'll see you as someone they can't mess with. And that matters a lot. That sort of status can affect how you're treated day to day.
2: And this sort of brings me back to this, like how big of an issue this is, because I feel like, I mean, start with race. There's just so many issues that are tangled up in it. Housing, like everything combines to bring people to this point where they're even in front of the prosecutor for the first time. And I was very interested in how you tried to accordion-like sort of expand into those and then come back together. And I'm interested in the process of why that didn't take, I don't know, 10 years. Like, it seems like a thing that could go on forever.
1: Well, totally. I mean, you know all about this. I think that rich reporting projects do feel like they could go on forever. And there is this fear that I have that even when I've put in a few years, like, have I really learned enough? Do I really understand these people's lives well enough? Did I get Kevin to, like, Talked to me enough, take me places enough that I could really describe his world. Like, you know, when you think about what you would want someone to do to write a book about your own life, like how deeply you would want to be understood if you were so, um, I would say, crazy as to let someone into your life to try you would want, like, a serious investment of time and attention, and maybe a few years isn't actually enough. So I do go down that path all the time. The other pragmatic side of me thinks, like, okay, but I signed up to follow one case all the way through. And after, like, a year and a half of seeing someone regularly and talking to lots of other people and spending more time, like, I hope I can figure this out well enough to tell this one story. And in terms of connecting it to the larger phenomenon, the other piece of this in terms of prosecutors was that the gun laws in New York function in this way we were talking about, where prosecutors have this choice between serious violent felony, lesser felony, misdemeanor. They're the ones in the driver's seat. And so I could both talk about the system as a whole and these deeper questions, these social questions you are raising, like Mm -hmm. where does someone live and what kind of supports do they have and all of these aspects of American life. But it was also through this lens of the prosecutors making the decisions, it's his or her discretion that's on the line here. So mm-hmm. it was sort of doing all those things at once.
2: And the, the Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, becomes a character in the book and, and on the podcast as well. And did that come about easily? I mean, he's sort of more of a reformist on the reformist side of things. Was it hard to get a person like that involved in doing... I mean, it seemed like he did very extensive, pretty open interviews with you about even his his background, which was also fascinating.
1: Right. Although that came very late in the game. So when I initially started reporting, Eric wasn't actually the DA because he he was the number two. Ken Thompson, who was Brooklyn's first African-American DA, was elected in 2014. He was the person I thought I was writing about. And then he tragically died of cancer. And Eric Gonzalez who'd been a career prosecutor, but also grown up, like, in the streets of Brooklyn, became the interim DA and took over that office. I was not initially sure at all what kind of cooperation I was going to get from Eric Gonzalez because he was so new. He wasn't a career politician. He didn't – my perception was that he didn't trust me at all in the beginning. They were really keeping me at arm's length. I could talk to him, but it was clearly – you know, the kind of interview where you're getting a lot of sound bites back and you feel mm-hmm. like it's very much the surface. What's the script someone wants you to hear that they've prepared? And they're not letting you beyond that at all. And I just kept coming back. I mean, you just hope, I suppose, over time that someone will trust you a little more just because you keep expressing interest and you're just kind of wear them down. And I think it also. Helped that Eric. I'm going to call him Eric because I've used that in my podcast too. He's not a career politician. And so there was something charmingly unpolished about him. I would ask him about something, and instead of getting defensive, he tended to be like, oh, yeah, that's messed up. For example, at one point, WNYC did a story about how the Brooklyn DA's office was declining to prosecute many more marijuana offenses for white people than black people. And when I asked Eric about it, he was like, Yeah, that's a big problem. I didn't know that. That was the other thing. He was like, I didn't know that was happening. That's also kind of a strange thing for a politician to say. So all of that over time, I think we sort of figured out how to trust each other to some degree. And the interviews you were talking about, which I also found fascinating, happened after Eric read my book. Oh, At interesting. that point, he decided to sit down and talk to me for my podcast. And even the day he came in, his um, PR guy said, you know, I don't think he's going to stay very long. And please don't ask him about how his brother died. Like he doesn't want to tell that story. And we had this like three and a half hour long interview in which like it got very intense and intimate. And it did turn out that Eric wanted to tell that story. And I had never had an interview like that with the public official before. So, of course, as a journalist, I was thrilled about that.
2: So the podcast, did you start it after the book was already finished or were you doing double tracking them at some point?
1: Yeah, I probably would have been better if I'd started after the book was finished. I thought about it when I was like halfway through reporting the book. Then I pitched it, and I worked on it a lot in the summer of 2018. I realized I was going to have to find a new character because Kevin wanted his identity protected, and it just wasn't going to work. Like, I wouldn't be able to interview him on tape Mm -hmm. to tell his story. And also his case was finished, and it just seemed like I needed to kind of let him go. So then I had to find another character. That took actually a lot of time and effort. It's hard. Look, one of the benefits of the diversion program in Brooklyn I'm writing about is that if you successfully graduate, your charges are dismissed and sealed. So it's not necessarily a good thing to be on tape talking all about your life. It took a lot of work to right, find right. someone who was into that. And then the lucky break I had was that <laughs> this is quite meta. But some of the participants in this program were taking a class to learn to make a podcast at this arts organization called Brick. So that was how I found Terari, who is the main character in my podcast. And then I took a break from working on it. Um, Viralyn Williams, who I was working with, who's this wonderful producer. She took another job. And we had this like, hiatus. And then finally, I realized, like, oh my god, I have to really finish the show. And Jack Hitt, who's editing the project, um, helped rope in another producer, Alvin Melleth, who's been amazing. So we then had this intensive period. Basically, by then, the book was done. And that's when I did most of the work for the podcast.
2: So we'll come back to Jack Hit. You can't just throw in Jack Hit and then move on. <laughs> but we'll come back to that. I agree. But in terms of the work, did you feel like you were exercising different muscles when you, I mean, you had to pick an entirely new story. But did it feel like doing the same type of reporting again or doing a completely different type of reporting?
1: Well, I had to learn how to report to tell a story on tape, which is really different, and you probably know this, I don't interview people on tape. I'm a print journalist. I interrupt people constantly. I'm not very good at letting them just tell their stories. Jack had to tell me how to use silence. Just keep quiet, people. would keep talking. It's a miracle. I'm not very good at keeping quiet. There were all kinds of adjustments like that I had to make to reporting. And I also didn't know at all how to write to tape and how many fewer words. So I think Jack and Alvin very kindly when I wrote my first script and say to me, like, are you kidding? Because what I did was I actually, like, originally took paragraphs from my book and just like plopped them in and figured well you know we'll have to touch them up a little well that just doesn't work at all I mean this is a kind of writing where it's so much more spare and precise and conversational and I had to learn how to do all those things so I was really lucky that I had two very patient people who did know what they were doing who were willing to teach me but that was a huge challenge I felt like the book was the sort of intellectual backstop for the podcast. Like I knew by then what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. I knew the points I wanted to make. I knew what research to draw on. The kind of intellectual framework was there. But the art of putting it together, the art and the craft, were totally missing.
2: And how did you get Jack Hitspin on this podcast? Um, How did Jack get involved in editing your podcast?
1: Jack lives in New Haven and we are old friends. Uh-huh. And I asked You just roped him it in. I, exactly. I just, and I'm a huge fan of much of his work for This American Life, but most recently the show he's been doing called Uncivil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just said, hey, like, I need an editor for this. Do you think you would ever work on it? And I think I, my timing was just lucky.
2: That's ideal. Yes. uh, Getting the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: I literally, the project wouldn't exist without Jack, because especially since Vera left and we had to find someone else to come in, um, Jack was willing to tell Alvin to quit his job to come work with us. Whereas I was like, wait, I'm nervous about whether you should do that or not. Are you sure that's going to be okay?" But it's turned out for me to be wonderful. And I think Alvin feels good about it, too.
2: Well, you did a kind of behind the scenes with both producers and... There were several things out of that that I thought don't get talked about a lot. And and one was, was race. So you specifically wanted, you say in this behind the scenes, that you wanted producers who were journalists of color because you were going into communities that were predominantly people of color and you are not. And I'm curious about... How explicit were you about that when you started the podcast project? Did you say this is the way it's going to be done?
1: I didn't say that, but I knew inside myself that I felt like this was a strength that I was looking for. Like, I just knew it wasn't something that I was going to bring to the table. And so here I had a chance to hire someone or to be part of hiring a true collaborator. Like, why wouldn't I try to make up for my own deficit? That mm-hmm. was sort of how I thought about it. And then I met Vera Lynn and I thought she was terrific and she's african-american and her reporting orientation tends to be towards stories about people of color so i felt immediately like she was going to bring a whole dimension to this reporting that i didn't have and then alvin's indian-american um and i felt there was this additional just strength like it was like hiring someone with different muscles that's how i thought about it
2: And did it feel different when you were actually doing the interviews with the subjects uh, as opposed to maybe when you're going in for the book and you're spending a lot of time with them and it's just you? Did you feel a difference in those interviews?
1: I did and I didn't. So. Both Fearlin and Alvin sometimes ask questions that I wouldn't think to ask. Now, maybe that's just because, like, they have a different sensibility than I do. It's hard to know what to attribute that to. I definitely notice that, though. And then there are some references, and this is also about the fact that they're much younger than me and hipper than I am, (laughs) but they're like, you know, with... A lot of the people we were reporting on, they would talk a lot about music and I didn't know anything about their music. I mean, my sons, who are teenagers, would despair over how little I knew, but I didn't pretend that I got it. Like, And then Verlin and Alvin and Terari or whoever could just make fun of me as the like out of it, you know, white mom in the room. And like <laughs> that was fine with me. But I don't think that's necessarily like a frivolous part of reporting, because it's also about, do you understand my world? What are your reference? Um, what do I have to translate for you? And so maybe that did change the reporting.
2: And it made me think about what did, you know, someone like Kevin, how did he look at you in terms of the project that you were doing and the purpose of it and why he or Terrari would decide to share their stories with you? What Because we talked in our last last time you and I talked, we talked some about people talking to reporters and who chooses to speak. And I kind of I wanted to revisit it because I felt a little bit like I said, well, you know, sometimes you run into someone who won't talk to you and you say, like, well, that's the smart one. But the mix of motivations of someone talking to you is actually much more complex than that.
1: Yeah. So Kevin was surprised that I kept coming back. That, I think, was his initial reaction. I was like, oh, you again. What are you doing here? And I told him I was going to come back. But, you know, I think, like, people don't know whether you're going to show up until you show up again. I was part of, at first, for months, I was just part of his scene at court because he wasn't that psyched to have me, like, show up in Brownsville where he lived. And so for a long time, I would just, like, wait for him to come back to court. He was coming every month or so. That seemed okay for starters. And then I think that we had a kind of turning point when his best friend died. And that was a really hard time for him, as you could understand. And I was interested. like, I wanted to hear all about his feelings. I would talk about it as much as he wanted to. And I think in that moment, that played a role for him in some way, just that someone was willing to like and really wanted to hear all about how he was feeling. And after that, then he was much more like, oh, yeah, you could come meet me at home. I could show you this. I could introduce you to this person. And then I think he just, like, got used to my being around and started taking it for granted and, like, remembering to fill me in on things every once in a while, which, of course, for me was, like, thrilling. So... Maybe part of it again is you just sort of wear people down like a puppy dog with your, <laughs> with your interest. Um, and Tarari, because he'd taken this podcasting class, he loved coming to the studio, which was great. So he just thought it was fun to come in to Slate, to go to the studio. He walked in the first day. He was like, oh, this place is cool. And he sat down and like was super comfortable with the mic and just, I think, into it. And and he also makes music. So I think there was also this part of him that was interested in that aspect of recording. Uh, yeah, it was really fun.
2: And how sort of over that time, especially with Kevin, how connected do you feel to his life? Like I do a lot of reporting where I just never talk to the people again. And they don't necessarily want to talk to me either. But there is this phenomenon where they feel very close to you. You've listened to them. You've spent a lot of time with them. You've kept showing up and then you suddenly stop showing up. And I'm wondering how that maps onto this situation.
1: Uh, My relationship with Kevin is much more about him rejecting me than me leaving him behind. So when his case was over, I was not done reporting my book. Like I needed to stay in touch with him for fact checking to find out what was going to happen to him. For a million reasons. And so I said to him on that last day in court, like, you have to call me back. But of course, he didn't have to call me back. I'm not his lawyer. He doesn't owe me anything. And so there was this period and it went on for a few months last summer when I couldn't reach him at all. And nothing I was doing was working. I went over to his house. That didn't work. His lawyer tried to get back in touch with him. His social worker. I was like, nothing. And it really, I was like waking up in the middle of the night thinking like, I lost Kevin, I lost this person. He only lives in Brooklyn. It's not that far away. Like, am I gonna have to go move to Brownsville so I can show up at all hours for I really didn't know what I was gonna do. And then I did find him through this sort of circuitous route involving a friend of his I was in touch with and, you know, social media. It worked out, but it was really, really nerve-wracking. And I think that Kevin was ready to go on with his life. And like He could tell this was a project that was important to me, and maybe he'd gotten something out of it, but I don't think continuing to talk to me was super important. And I completely understand that and don't begrudge it at all. I do... want to know what's happened to people. When I've had this intimate relationship with them, I remain deeply interested and curious about them. If he appeared tomorrow, I would be so happy to hear from him. So yeah, it's funny. It was a kind of unrequited love, I would say, this, this part of the relationship.
2: Uh, I'm literally going to keep showing up at your house. Yes, uh. which,
1: you, which your mother really might resent. I hate doing that. I do not like coming to people's houses uninvited. I don't like it when people knock on my door. So I just feel like it's invasive.
2: Well, to what extent do you feel like in either your pitch to that, I don't know if you would explicitly ever say anything like this, but in someone like Kevin talking to you, is there an element of I'm trying to change this issue? Like if you tell your story, it will help change this issue. Or do you sort of try to stay away from that?
1: I stay away from that because I can never make that promise. I don't know how it's going to play out. I feel like people either... That's part of why they're talking to you to begin with or that's not of a lot of moment to them. Like Mm -hmm. they're legitimately thinking about their own life or they don't think that you're going to be able to change anything. And you know what? They're probably right. So, no, I didn't say any of that. And with Kevin, it was also tricky because the more I understood about his world in Brownsville, the more I understood that it was actually risky for him to be talking to me. I didn't ask him a single question that could have gotten anyone in trouble. I didn't want to know anyone's name. I didn't want to know about anything that could implicate him. But there was a protocol in his neighborhood where you just don't talk to people. And that I was breaking. So I started getting worried about the implications for him and whether inadvertently I could be putting him in danger even though he wasn't doing anything. And I just trusted him on all of that and trusted him to set the boundaries. And then I tried really hard to respect them. So I went through with him everything that was in the book. And when he felt like the details were getting too close, I took things out. I didn't put in anything that wasn't true. But I took out some things that could only have been true about him that he was worried people around him would read and say, oh, I know who that kid is.
2: That's interesting because then then you have this other Terrari who's... You know, he it's his real name and he's sort of going through. It's not exactly parallel, but it's similar in many ways. Yeah. Well,
1: so part of what I learned was that Terari lives in Williamsburg and it's just a different scene, mm. a more forgiving scene. And we've talked about the podcast since it's been out and friends of his are listening to it. And I think he feels proud of it and happy he participated in it. We did keep his last name out of the podcast because I don't want people to Google him and find out about his criminal record, which is supposed to be dismissed and sealed. And that was like a small way of protecting him. But he's much more a person with like one foot in two different worlds. And that was less true of Kevin. And it really did have to do with this sort of microgeography of Brooklyn, which I have come to understand through my reporting, but didn't know beforehand.
2: How do you logistically report this? Because you don't live in New York City.
1: Yeah, I live in New Haven. Luckily, it's not that far away. I just took the train to New York and the subway to Brooklyn, like over and over and over again.
2: Like, same day? Like, go come and go in the same day?
1: Yes. Yeah. There's
2: like, 10,000 writers living in Brooklyn, like one of them should have taken on this story.
1: I thought for a while, I was like, I really should just hire someone, some young person. But I love reporting. I can't give it. I wouldn't give it up. Like for a project like this, the idea that I was going to outsource Kevin to someone else was like unthinkable to me. But yes, you're right. It it was a little crazy.
2: (laughs) Seems like you could have used New Haven.
1: Well, there are all these reasons. So one fundamental thing about Connecticut is that all the prosecutors are appointed. And I was writing about elected prosecutors. So that was kind of a deal breaker. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. So that same issue that I was asking about in terms of asking someone to cooperate on the basis of trying to change something is, I agree, like potentially a ridiculous notion. But in a broader sense, I feel like, do you write a book like this if you don't want this to change? I mean, I feel like the fundamental premise of the book, and there are even places where You have a voicey way of saying, like, this is important or not quite this is outrageous, but almost like what happens with bail, for instance, is insane. Like it doesn't happen in other countries. And a lot of people don't know that. So how much in your head is is the idea of a possible change that could happen?
1: I think about it in terms of what you just said of a lot of people don't know this. So I see my job as like, here are these startling facts. I didn't know this. Maybe if I tell a lot of other people this, that will change how they think about this issue. And then someone whose job it is to organize people or like run for election can try to capitalize on that new level of knowledge and information. So I see myself very much in the role of a journalist. I'm the observer. I'm standing there watching what's happening, and I'm going to tell you about it. I'm pretty convinced that if everybody went to criminal court, we would not have courts that are dysfunctional the way our courts are. Because what you see every day is a lot of dysfunction and disrespect, and it's kind of deadening. And most people, especially most middle and upper class people in this country, don't know anything about the system. They haven't experienced it firsthand. They'd prefer not to think about it. I mean, it's very stigmatized. So a lot of what I do is just bear witness. I did, in this book, decide to have an appendix that was actual suggestions for how to be a progressive prosecutor. I did that in part because I knew if I didn't, the reviews were all going to say, well, she really outlines this problem, but like, what exactly should we do about it? And I mean, the truth is the ideas for that appendix are threaded through the book, but I thought if I collected them in one place, it's going to be really clear. What I really wrote that section for were voters. Okay, I want to know what values my local prosecutor has do I think that they're doing their job right? Here are a variety of questions I can ask. Here's a yardstick. That was how I was thinking of that part of the book. But hmm. it does change the um, the nature of the project somewhat to admit that you have a point of view about what should happen. And I wrote that section with people from groups I'd come to respect who do advocacy work, because I figured like they knew more than me to begin with, and they had more credibility in that part of the project.
2: It's interesting that you said that is a classic nonfiction book review uh, trope. Is It's great at outlining the problem, but a little short on solutions.
1: Yeah, I really didn't. Want, and I also felt like, particularly for this issue right now, We know a lot about how to end mass incarceration. We've learned a lot about how to prevent crime. Most people, I think, don't know all the particulars of that, even if they have this idea of like, wow, there are too many people in jail and prison, how we bring those numbers down safely, much less explored. The other thing that I think made this safer for me as a journalist was that there really is bipartisan support for reducing mass incarceration. And it's become something that conservative Republicans as well as liberal Democrats have claimed as, like, an accomplishment. So early into my reporting, I found this Wall Street Journal op-ed that Grover Norquist, the, you know, enemy of taxes extraordinaire – he'd written this op-ed in which he said that criminal justice reform was one of the major achievements of the conservative movement of recent times. And I thought, oh, OK, well, if you're claiming this, I can stand on ground here that's not partisan ground. And that felt really helpful and important, especially at this moment when everything is so polarized along partisan lines. It was a big relief to feel like I could be part of a conversation that didn't have that particular division.
2: And there, there's this other example in the book, which was one I had read a little bit about of the new Philadelphia elected DA, and I knew you were from Philadelphia. And then you get to this point in the book where you say that your sister is actually like the policy advisor to, what's his name, Krasner? Larry Krasner. Krasner. And I wondered if that, was it disappointing that here's this like, he's a really good example of what's going on. Really interesting That you had this like both fortunate and unfortunate tie. I wondered if he would have been a bigger character in the book if your sister had not been working for him
1: that's possible with him yeah i mean part of it was the timing so larry krasner got elected in 20 he took office in january 2018 so for me that was fairly late on Mm. i was already like up and running pretty seriously in brooklyn at that point I love my window into Krasner's office that I have through my sister. She sends me news stories all the time. I have a really good sense of what's going on there. And I've really enjoyed watching her work and see what's possible and what's not possible. Because one thing about electing a reform-minded DA is you start finding out about the limits of prosecutorial power and all the forces arrayed to stop that person from – Quickly changing the system. So that's been fascinating for me. I don't think I would have done the reporting differently necessarily. It did obviously change how I had to like think and write about Larry Krasner in that office.
2: Yeah. I wondered if your sister gave you any insight to what extent the press or the media is one of those forces arrayed against change that she complains to you about reporters like you. <laughs>
1: That's funny. Dana doesn't complain about reporters, but Larry Krasner does. I was on a call with him a month ago after my book came out, and there were dozens of reporters on the line. And so I can tell you this. So Krasner said, You know, Trump's not my guy, but I understand why he wants a direct line to his voting base. And basically, it was like Krasner has really thinks the local press in Philadelphia is not doing a good job not asking the right questions not changing its frame of reference he was particularly referring to the Philadelphia Inquirer and its ownership and that was all really interesting.
2: (laughs) Well that reminds me as well of uh, it's described in the book that you report for the Times Magazine on the on the Memphis case and then this prosecutor who's somewhat under fire for her tactics goes out and is tweeting about your article with a hashtag that's like New York Times fake news or like New York Times. Pro
1: crime NY Times. Pro
2: crime NY Times, (laughs) which is very Trumpian.
1: Totally. And
2: was specifically directed at you.
1: Yeah. So this was interesting because this was 2017, which is like, you know, early on in Trump land. And Amy Weirich's response really did seem to me like it was ripped from the pages of the White House because it was very much personal. It was about the Times. It was about me as a reporter, less than the facts of the story. And I thought at first, like pro-crime and White Times, I could see that taking off. I could see this gaining steam as like a personal attack on me. That doesn't seem like a crazy strategy. It didn't really work. And I haven't talked to Amy Weirich since then. She has not been interested in talking to me. But as my book has come out, she has not repeated that move. In fact, none of the prosecutors I criticize, and not prosecutors writ large, like, the National DA's Association, the state DA's associations, none of them, as far as I know, have really come after me or the book. And I wonder if that's smart on their part, better off ignoring something you don't like, or if it's a reflection of this sort of bipartisan moment we've been talking about where actually it's harder to make the argument tough on crime, which is If that's true, it's astonishing because we have lived for decades in a world in which like you could never lose as a prosecutor by being the most tough on crime.
2: Well, it did seem like there was a sort of level of hope that you could draw from the book that seemed different than, I don't know, on a spectrum of sort of like when the new Jim Crow came out versus now. I got the feeling of sort of wind in the sails of actually people do want to change this, but then it's so intractable. As a problem.
1: Yeah, we know how to change it. There is a lot of political energy to change it. And yet, it's like turning an ocean liner in port, as Judge Jonathan Littman, who's in New York, said on my podcast. He's right about that. The actual doing of it is going to take so much effort and a lot of time. Which is always a funny moment as a journalist where you feel like you see the answer and the solutions and you can report on the people who are trying and yet you know that it's going to be with us indefinitely or at least like in the near a medium term. And I think, you know, one criticism of my book, which is a legitimate one, is like, these are early days. Do we really know that these reformer DAs are going to pan out? What if it turns out that nothing really changes? And I just don't know the answer to that. I mean, I hope this moment of hope is one that proves enduring, but it's just really too early to tell.
2: And where does that, has that criticism actually come from somewhere? Or that's one that you've come up with that would be a criticism of your book?
1: That criticism has come from the reform movement. So, you know, there are people, there are prison abolitionists who think that we shouldn't have prisons or jails at all, or at least want to change the whole conversation to imagine a world in which they don't exist anymore, for whom this reform movement feels incremental and frustrating and like that whole problem of, you um, know, taking energy that should be going toward blowing up the whole system and then just tinkering with it. And if it turns out that these new DAs are just tinkering around the edges, then those folks are going to be proved right. And then it may we may look back and think this window was open. We shouldn't have just settled for these DAs. We should have done something much more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Though I have to say, just to have the last word as a pragmatist, I'm not, I don't see another more promising real um, option out there right now.
2: What well, do you feel like in kind of voicing solutions in the book and having a tone of like, there are things changing or there's a side that I've, I'm pushing on a little bit that now that the book's out that you're getting pulled more into people wanting you to be an advocate? And do you put a stop to that at some point and say, no, I won't go? This is the line I will not cross.
1: Yeah, people who are running as reform DAs want me to come and do events with them or talk Mm. to them. And I mean, I'll talk to anyone. I'm a reporter, but I'm not endorsing candidates. I think that's probably I'm sure that's against the rules of The New York Times. (laughs) But also, it's against my rules. Like, That's just not my role in the world. If I got really interested in a race, I could write about it because I was interested. But I'm not going to be the person who's like on stage holding your hand in the air because I don't know how it's going to play out. And that's also just not my place in this ecosystem. I guess the one other thing I'd say about this is that what matters the most to me is that these DAs who are getting elected answer to a different constituency. And so when I'm not sure, like, is this person saying and doing the right things? Should we be demanding more? I don't feel like that's my call to make. That's Mm -hmm. the call of the groups who have worked so hard to put these folks in office. And I think that accountability is crucial. So I have watched with great interest this group called Court Watch, spring up around the country where people just show up in court. And when someone goes to jail for, like, stealing a bar of soap, they tweet about it. And then these DAs have to answer not to, like, oh, you let out someone who committed murder, but, like, you're over-punishing people. That dynamic is really important. I enjoy watching that. And there have been instances, particularly in Houston, where – Someone got into office with the backing of civil rights groups and immigrants' rights groups and then seriously disappointed them, and they came after her. And the DA's name is Kim Og. She'd asked for a big budget increase to hire a whole bunch more prosecutors without offering any more money to the defense bar. And these groups that elected OG were like, you've got to be kidding. This is not why we put you in office. And the county commissioners in Houston voted down her budget request, which is like a surprising event. Generally, prosecutors get what they want, especially in a state like Texas, you would think they would win. So to me, that was all a really healthy sign that this isn't just about like a cult of personality. This is about these groups really trying to exact standards and make sure that they're followed.
2: Well, it's fascinating, too, because that's almost like, I mean, that's a local journalist's function to show up in court and sort of just expose what's going on and then try to eventually a result comes about. But that act of kind of going and sitting in court and tweeting about it is uh, something that well, local journalists used to be able to do and there were many more of them.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, now we have such uneven local journalism, right? So it happens in Texas. There are terrific local journalists and they were totally on the Kim Og story and like tweeting it at me and really interesting to follow. But then there are systems and, you know, Philadelphia may be one of them where it's not as good a local journalism culture and it's really meaningful to have people sit in court. I think increasingly, yes, we need to have some of those like citizen observers who are helping us hold our government officials accountable.
2: So I want to return to the rules of the New York Times. You mentioned the rules of New York Times. Can we talk about this Kavanaugh thing? Is oh, yeah, that possible we can to talk, talk about? about that. Mm-hmm. Because I found that totally fascinating from the beginning. So your byline was on a story about Brett Kavanaugh maybe getting into some kind of fight and throwing some ice at people in New Haven when he was a undergraduate Yale. When I saw that I guess because I know you live in New Haven, I thought, oh, she was probably the only one that went and pulled the police file on that. And then it became a thing, a yes. thing as big as the president's spokesperson calling you out specifically, oh, this biased person was reporting the story. So what was this experience like for you?
1: It was horrible because I was becoming the story in a way that like journalists I'm very uncomfortable with. And that story broke on the day that the Times did a much bigger story about Trump's tax returns. And so the idea that I was distracting in any way from that important piece of work was like alarming and upsetting to me. You were right. I was the person on the ground in New Haven who the news desk asked to go pull a police file. Like, that's what I did.
2: So it wasn't even your idea. You didn't say, I'm no. here, I'm going to go. They asked, Can you go do this?
1: Yes. It was someone else's tip. I was just helping out. And I want to say, I love doing things like that. I love scoops. I totally have that energy. I would have gone and pulled that police file for Sonia Sotomayor, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for anyone who the news desk was interested in. So it didn't occur to me that I was doing something that I could call down all this criticism on myself and the paper for. But I also had made, I would say, a mistake the previous summer. I teach at Yale Law School. And when Kavanaugh was nominated, a bunch of faculty members wrote and said very praising things of Kavanaugh. And some of the people who did that were liberals whose politics are not aligned with Kavanaugh's. And it seemed to me deeply hypocritical and disappointing because I felt like they were doing that to curry favor Hmm. in a way that I just thought was wrong. So I tweeted something about that part of the Kavanaugh nomination, total inside baseball of Yale Law School. But I think I forgot in that moment that I really should always wear my New York Times hat and that by... Arguing with these law professors in this one professional context, I was doing something that could be used against me as a journalist later. No one paid any attention to my tweet really in the moment. But then months later, when my bylines on a news story, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had this tweet she could pick up. And you know the things about like a solo tweet. They're totally out of context. I sounded much more political and critical of Kavanaugh than I would even in an op-ed I wrote for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. There was or even another...
2: on the GabFest? Do you no. feel like if they had mined GabFest, they could have also found...
1: If they had mined GabFest, who knows what would have happened. But you can't put out an audio clip. Like, a tweet is a tweet, right? And the other thing I blamed myself for is, like, I thought I knew this about social media, right? I thought I understood how to use it. And yet, like, obviously, I didn't quite, or at least I wasn't careful enough in that moment. There was another part of this from the point of view of the Times, which is Times Inside Baseball. I sometimes write op-eds for the Times. And it turned out that there's a rule against writing opinion pieces and also writing for the news desk at the paper in a way that's different from the magazine. And I just didn't know that. And so that was the problem from the point of view of the paper or a problem.
2: I understand that there's that policy that that they have a policy about sort of tweeting political things. It seems very unevenly enforced to me uh, across a lot of reporters that I follow and Obviously, this is a case that you could point to and say, well, this is why you shouldn't do it. But on the other hand, the reporting that you did was just was literally a police report. Like it doesn't get any more sort of like I'm just gathering these facts than that. And they could have said, no, actually, this is no big deal. It's just facts. She collects facts like forget about it.
1: Yes, they could have. I mean, look, this is one in which I think honest, good journalists disagree. I came up at Slate, a place where I did opinion journalism for years. To me, what matters is, like, disclosure. Do you know where someone's coming from? Can you tell how they've arrived at their opinions? I also see myself as someone who's very much driven by my reporting. I try not to take knee-jerk partisan stances. I'm sure, like everyone else, I sometimes do, because we all fall prey to that. But I'm pretty careful when I express opinions to say where they're coming from, at least I hope. So to me, it seems like, OK, well, if you see my byline there, you can look up the other things I've written. You can see where I'm coming from. And that should be what matters here. In addition to the fact that, like, yes, pulling a police report is something that I can do, that any journalist can do, I hope. And also, again, that I would have done in any context, like not because I was out to get Brett Kavanaugh, Um it was just like a good scoop. And he was in the news at that moment. And I think there were some conservative commentators who argued that that bar fight wasn't a story. You know, he's up for a Supreme Court nomination. Um, his, the friend he was with got arrested. I think it was a story. So once it clears that bar, for me, everything you need to know to evaluate these questions of bias is like out there on the table.
2: If you'd been it had been additional reporting by if you hadn't had a byline, I feel like none of this would have ever happened. But that's also such an arbitrary distinction. You see sometimes you see five people in addition reporting by and you're like, why didn't they get bylines? They they did just as much as the regular reporter. Yes. (laughs) But so after this is the last thing I'll ask about this, but you have been doing GabFest for a long time now and. You have like gotten in front of a microphone and talked about how you feel about the things that are happening during the day, some of which I'm sure generates a reaction. But how did that compare to being, I just wanna know what it's like to be in the spotlight of Sarah Huckabee Sanders making a comment that is specifically about you.
1: It was awful. I just, it wasn't the kind of notoriety or attention that I would ever want. I mean, I have that fundamental discomfort that I think a lot of journalists have and should have about becoming the story. Like, no longer were people talking about the police report I'd gone to get. They were talking about me. And I am not interesting. I don't want to be interesting in that way. So, in that sense, like, I felt at fault just because I didn't want to be in that position. And I was. And, like, clearly I had done something to bring it upon myself. You know, there were also journalists who said, like, this is not a role you should have played. You should understand that if you're being an opinion journalist, you don't also get to go write for the news desk. Again, in the specific circumstances of like going to pull a police report because an editor asked you to do that, it seemed innocent. So anyway, I guess I'll stop there. I did (laughs) not enjoy (laughs) Sarah Huckabee Sanders and everyone else attacking me that day. We've
2: established that it was not fun. No, it was
1: definitely not fun. It was also over. It was interesting how it felt in the moment like this intense heat. I mean, literally, I felt like my face was flushed for 48 hours. And then it just like everything else in our world, it just like went away. Uh, We have such a short attention span. I mean, I'm grateful for that.
2: I mean, that's the phenomenon of Brett Kavanaugh himself, that all of those things now, the much bigger questions around accusations against him just falling out of the public discourse because that's behind us now.
1: Yes. And that was a bigger story.
2: So the last question I have for you is so your your book is out and obviously you're doing a lot of interviews and other things around your book. How do you sort of re-enter, I'm asking this because I want to know the answer for myself. Uh, how do you re-enter sort of your your regular rhythm of the journalism you were doing before coming off of the, but what you're doing the podcast as well, coming off of these huge projects?
1: I think it's hard. I think the Times Magazine is such an amazing place to work. And I love my work there and get to basically pick what I want to write about. And so that makes it easier. But it is this... Fundamental kind of psychological shift where you just like have to start thinking about something else and take it really seriously. I mean, part of me is like can't wait to write about new things, right? I mean, I'm a journalist like many with a short attention span. A book project is hard for me in that regard. The actual event of one's book coming out is so anxiety-provoking and great and terrible and weird and exciting all at once. I think I need a little more recovery time from that, but I'm really looking forward to having my normal life back and doing shorter, normal magazine assignments for a while. I feel like... It will be a while. Did I say this the last time? I think maybe the last time I said I couldn't wait to write another book. This time I'm like, you know what? I'm in no hurry. Magazine writing, podcasting, this seems great.
2: Thanks again for coming. Thanks for being here. It's I love the book. It's amazing.
1: Thank you. That's super nice of you.
2: Talk to you on the next one. All right. <laughs> That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Emily Bazelon for coming in. Her book is called Charged, and you should go check it out. It's uh, an amazing book. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Janelle Peiffer. Thanks to our intern, Louisa Garbowit, and to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week.